That's right. Okay, so yesterday we did this Mishnah talking about uh, how much the fire, how much the, uh, when you start something cooking before Shabbos, how much it has to be started cooking before Shabbos so that there's no longer concern that you'll come to stoke the coals. So we talked about the fact that the, if you're putting a, um, a dough in, then it has to have crusted over either the top or the bottom. So now the Gemara is going to get into exactly what level of cook an item has to be before we no longer have a concern that you'll come to stoke the coals. The comma. How cooked does it have to be to be defined as cooked that you'll no longer stoke the coals? Amr Rebbe Lazar, Amr Rav. Amr Lazar says in the name of Rav. It has to be that the amount of time that it was in the oven or in the pot before Shabbos began, it was long enough for it to reach the level of Michael Ben Dusay. So Michael Ben Dusay is there was a, a band of bandits. Their name, the leader's name was Ben Dusay. And Ben Dusay, because they were bandits, they would eat their food on the fly and they wouldn't always have time to sit and have a relaxing meal because they had a lookout saying that the cops were on, the, on their way. So they would cook their food and like sear it and then just eat it where it's not really cooked all the way, but they would eat it at that point. And the question exactly how far cooked it is, is it one third cooked or one half cooked? But there is a minimum amount that people will cook the food before they're willing to eat the food. In other words, once it reaches that minimum level of being cooked, there's no longer a concern that I'm going to come to stoke the coals because why do I ever stoke the coals? Because I need the fire to flare up because I need my food to get cooked faster. Once it reaches this minimum level of Michael Ben Dusay, there's no longer, it's, not, it's atypical now for people to be stoking the fire to make sure that it continues cooking. Because Michael Ben Dusay is the minimum that people want it to be cooked. So as long as it reaches Michael Ben Dusay before Shabbos, we are no longer concerned. It's Manami. We, it was stated as well like this. Amar Avasi, Amar Avyechran, in a similar vein, there's a halacha that non-Jews are not permitted to cook for Jews. In other words, we actually just touched on this uh, two blot ago, right? The idea that one of the 18 enactments was that a non-Jew is not permitted to cook for a Jew out of a concern that if they cook for you, then you might end up coming closer to them. One reason is they might end up coming closer to them. The other reason is that you, they might end up cooking with not kosher food, perhaps. So there, the halacha is non-Jews are not permitted to cook for Jews. How do we take care of this problem? You have a Jew either has to put the, turn the fire on or alternatively has to put the food on the fire and then the non-Jew could do whatever he wants afterwards. Now, let's say the food was already partially cooked before the non-Jew got involved in the process. What, at what point do we say the food is already so significantly cooked that the, a, uh, the, the later um, beneficial part that the non-Jew is doing by cooking it is no longer relevant? So once again, we say the same benchmark. If the food has already reached the level of Michael ben and then the non-Jew gets involved in cooking it, then it's not going to forbid the food to be eaten by a Jew. Tanya, we learned in a b'risa. Chananya, kol shuk ha-meichel ben Dusay, mutra la-hashay gatuma. And this is going to be a big machlekes later on in the uh, third parak, I think it is, maybe the fourth parak. And big machlekes, Chananya and the Tanakama. And the question is like this. When you have the halacha that we've been talking about, we touched on once or twice, which is that when you leave food cooking on a fire before Shabbos, you have to, if the food is not raw and not fully cooked, there's a concern that perhaps you're going to come to stoke the fire. How do you take care of that? You put on a blech, right? So the blech is that metal piece that separates the fire from the food item. Because that metal piece is in the way, that it is a, becomes a recognizable thing that there's something different about this cooking process, and you're not as likely to stoke the fire. Now, Rabbi Hananya says that you don't need it to be fully cooked before there's no longer a concern that you'll come to stoke the fire. He says as long as it reaches the level of Michael Ben Rusay, like the food that Ben Rusay would eat, whereas the Chachamim say it has to be fully cooked before we are no longer concerned that you'll stoke the fire. So 
And, and he says that if it's already one-third cooked or one-half cooked, then you don't even have to garuf or ketuma. So garuf means to remove the coals, and ketuma means to cover the coals over. Right? So those are the two different ways that it becomes permitted to cook, to leave the food on the fire on Shabbos. Now, if you remove the coals, what does it even mean to leave it on the fire? So in those days, the, the heat was, they had these like pottery-type ovens that were you know, thinner on top and thicker on the bottom, and they'd have a lot of coals on the bottom. And even when you move the coals to the side, there was still a little bit of, of heat coming from the coals, but the residual heat coming from the walls would still be able to heat things up. So in theory, even at that point, you might actually come to soak the fire. But basically what Chachamim said is we're, now, we're no longer concerned that you'll soak the fire at that level, because since there's only very few coals left at that point, you're not going to come to soak the fire, because by soaking the fire, you're not going to accomplish anything anyways. So once you've moved the coals to the side, we're no longer concerned that you will come to soak the fire. Today, it'd be hard to define what, what would be the equivalent of that. Right? So the equivalent of that today would be to turn the fire off. Okay, well, if you turn the fire off today, then you're not going to start the fire again, right? We're not working with the same mitzvahs. We're not working with the same reality as they were working with in those days. Mariah, do you have something you wanted to say? I'm sorry, no. I thought you were going to say something about the Persian ovens, that even today they're like that. No, nothing. Okay. <laughs> The Mishnah says that you're not supposed to put the bread on the walls of the, on the tandoori wall until, uh, on tandoor wall? I don't remember how you say that. You're not supposed to put the bread on the wall unless it's going to get cr uh, the crusted over before Shabbos begins. The question is like this. We said until the bottom of it's crusted over. When we say the bottom, how do you define it? Do we look at the bottom? Basically, they would take the, that piece of, of like the flat uh, batter, like, uh, you know, like think of like a ish tandoor, and um, I mean a lapa, and you stick it on like the side of the wall. You smash it onto the wall that's very nice and hot. So what do we call the bottom of it getting crusted over? The part that's touching the hot wall or the part that's actually bottom facing the heat? What do we define as, as the bottom? Why would we define the part touching the wall as the bottom? Because when you would take it out of the fire, that would be the part that's on the bottom that you're eating. So the question is, when we talk about the bottom getting crusted, which side has to get crusted to be defined as it's reached that level, you're no longer concerned that people are going to soak it. The side that's touching the wall, I believe, gets crusted over first. So the Gemara says, which side is it? Is it the side closer to the fire or the side closer to the wall? Well, as it says, when, do you, when is it considered crusted over? When the side that is touching the wall gets crusted over, that's when you are permitted to leave it there. As long as, long as it got crusted over on the side touching the wall before Shabbos, you're permitted to leave it there on Shabbos without doing any other steps to make it less likely that you're going to come to soak the fire. The Mishnah continues and says, that you're allowed to lower the carbon Pesach into the oven before Shabbos, and we're not concerned that you're going to come to soak the fire. Excuse me, Rabbi? Um, yeah. On those tandoor ovens, um, they're called tandoors in India, but they're common throughout the Middle East and the Caucasus, like the Georgians and the Armenians make their bread that way as well. Those things cook like in a matter of 30 or 40 seconds. I mean, they're done in an incredibly fast period of time. That's an interesting point. I'm going to guess that the... They slap that, them on there, they're done, they take them out, it's finished. You know what? I'm guessing that my, the way I just described it is completely false. And we're not talking about a, a, a lapa. We're talking about some sort of thicker type of bread that really does take a while to, to bake, because otherwise you're right. Obviously, yeah, if it takes 40 but, seconds. But traditional, right. traditional European ovens as well operate on the same principle. They have a very, very thick brick or clay or mortar wall, and you build a fire in the oven, and the, the, 
oven walls soak up the heat and you use the heat to, you don't cook it actually on the fire you use the heat from the walls to cook it that's how you could put a chong in there you know before shabbos and be ready the next day that's how they used to do it in the stepblock they had a right. big communal oven and everybody's stuff would go in there and it would cook overnight yeah, no, so I mean, clear, clearly the Mishnah is talking about a Matthias, a, a reality in which it was a thicker bread that they would put on the wall and it would take a while to bake. You're right, I don't know how to translate that into today. I don't know if we still make that type of bread at all today. We probably wouldn't use that type of oven today. We probably would use a, a standard oven today. I don't know. But it's because the bread cooks fast because it's very thin. Right, I understand that. Right? So, I'm saying, yeah. so that's why the Mishnah must be talking about a case where the bread was actually a thicker, a thicker dough and that's why you still stuck it onto the walls, but right. it it's a thicker dough, it took a longer time to bake. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, so, okay. So, Mishal's going to stop Pesach. So, they would lower the carbon Pesach. The, the, what, what's the carbon Pesach made out of, right? What type of meat is it? It's a young lamb or a young goat, right? And we're about to uh, read about it in the Torah when we read about uh, the carbon Pesach that they would bring to take them out of Mishraim. So, my time, what's the reason why it is permitted to lower the young lamb into the fire before Shabbos? It's not going to get cooked before Shabbos. Assuming the Bnei Chaburah is a reason here. The Bnei Chaburah, the people are sitting here and they are very excited to fulfill the mitzvah of, of roasted lamb and having this as their carbon Pesach, a special mitzvah. And they're very careful, they're very conscientious, and therefore they're going to be all sitting there and nobody's going to come to stoke the fire because they're all sitting there and they're talking about Yusuf Mitzrayim leaving, leaving from Egypt. And nobody's going to actually, but accidentally just spacing out, thinking about something else, come to stoke the fire because they're all busy and excited and they're all going to remind each other not to end up doing that. The implication is from your statement that the only reason why it's permitted by the Karim Pesach is because the Karim Pesach, everybody's come to fulfill this mitzvah, they're very conscientious, they're not going to come to make this mistake. So, so the Gemara says, the Ha'amar Mar, we learned on the previous days, Ahmed, on previous days, but if you're roasting a lamb, whether it is a closed off oven or not closed off oven, you're okay roasting a lamb without being a concern that perhaps you might come to stoke the fire. Why? Because when you roast the lamb, there's not any concern. Because when, if you would open up the fire to stoke the fire, if you open up the oven to stoke the fire, you're going to cause the lamb to get messed up in its cooking because that's not good for the lamb. If so, why do you have to say that the reason why it's permitted to lower the, fi- lower the lamb into the fire uh, for the carbon Pesach, the reason why it's permitted is because we're very conscientious. Say that. Even if you're not conscientious, you're talking about a lamb here. And a lamb, you, nobody opens up the wall. Umar answers, Hasam Mintach. Mintach. Hacha Mintach. Umar says like this. In the case of the lamb, that it is permitted to, it is permitted to, uh, to leave it in the fire, even if you don't have a whole bunch of people who are coming to fill their midst of eating the carbon Pesach, it's still permitted to do that with the lamb. What lamb are we talking about there? We're talking about a lamb that was chopped up lamb. Chopped up lamb is very delicate and it needs a very, very specific, very well calibrated oven. If you open up the walls, you open up the door of the oven, it's going to mess it up. It's about taking a whole lamb on a spit and putting it into a fire. There's not a concern that by opening up the thing, you're going to cause it to cook in a way that's going to get messed up. Making me hungry personally. The Gemara says like this It has to be that the fire has taken hold before Shabbos, or else you're not permitted to start a fire before Shabbos unless it has taken hold of the most of the wood. What is this referring to? How do we know this? So the, the actually, right, and we're talking about the part of the Mishnah where it says the special, the special uh, bonfire that they would have in the base of Moikate special bonfire that they would have in the base of Mikdash to heat up the water, to heat up the area where the Kayan would go to the Mikvah. Now, the, it says over there that you're permitted to do it over there 
even though regularly you wouldn't be permitted, it would have the only way you would ever be permitted if you're not in the base of Mikdash would be if the fire has taken hold of most of the wood before Shabbos. But when you're in the base of Mikdash, it's permitted even though it has not yet taken hold of most of the wood. So the Mara says, why? What's different about the base of Mikdash? Where our answer is, It says, how do you know you're not permitted to cook a fire on Shabbos, to start, sorry, to start a fire on Shabbos? The reason is because it says, you shall not kindle a fire in in all of your dwelling places. The implication is you're only not permitted to kindle a fire when you are in your dwelling places. But however, you are permitted to kindle a fire if you're dealing with a bonfire in the base of Mikdash. The base of Mikdash is not your dwelling places. That's the dwelling place of Hashem, and it's excluded from the Pasuk. Implication is that on a Torah level, you are permitted to start a fire in the base of Mikdash. Because that's the question. If that's true, then if it's true that you're permitted to light a fire on Friday, because really you're permitted to light a fire on Shabbos, then why are you telling us, oh, you're permitted to light a fire in the base of Mike Gate on Friday? No, you're not. You're permitted to light a fire in the base of Mike Gate on Shabbos. It's excluded completely from the whole halacha. You're not allowed to light a fire on Shabbos. So rather, we say it's like this. When the Pasuk said that you're not allowed to, I'm sorry, that you're allowed to, the Pasuk said excluding something in the base of Mikdash, it didn't mean excluding any fire in the base of Mikdash. What it meant is excluding a fire, that the purposes of this fire is to burn the leftover avar mupadarm, the leftover limbs and fat. Those are permitted to be burnt. A fire is permitted to be started on those for Shabbos. And the reason why it's permitted to light a fire on Shabbos, I'm sorry, not on Shabbos, before Shabbos, the reason why it's permitted to light a fire in the base of Mikdash, even not for the purposes of the Avarim and Padarim, is because Kahanim is the reason, Hain. The Kahanim are very careful with mitzvahs. They're very conscientious in general. Generally speaking, by the way, most of the Dine Darabanan, almost all of the Dine Darabanan, do not apply in the base of Mikdash. At any of the Dine Darabanan, the enactments, the decrees that people, if we allow them to do X, they might come to do Y, which is forbidden on a Torah level. In the base of Mikdash, we don't have those same, those same enactments don't apply in the base of Mikdash because the Kohanim are very careful, very conscientious. We're not concerned that they'll come to make a mistake. Okay. It said that in the outside of the base of Mikdash, you are permitted to light this fire before Shabbos if it has already taken hold in most of the wood before Shabbos. My Ruben, what's the definition of most? Majority. Amarab, Roiv Kalachavachas. So Rab says it has to be the majority of each and every piece of wood has to have been taken hold the fire before Shabbos. Shmuel says, no, it doesn't have to be that every, fire, every piece of wood was lit. It just has to be that enough pieces of wood were already lit that even without any adding wood to the fire, what's going to happen is the fire will end up, the fire will end up taking hold of every single piece of wood. So there's Rab and Shmuel. How much does Rab mean? Rab says it has to be most of every single piece, which is quite a lot. And Shmuel says it just has to be most of the entire fire, and that's enough. Tana Revchia Lissiue Lishmuel. So Revchia comes to bring a proof to Shmuel from Ebraisa. It says that the, it has to be that the flame was going up by itself. And it cannot be that the fire is going, the flame is going up based on something else. So we see that the fire has to be enough that it could go up by itself. The implication is as long as the fire has gotten to the point at which it could go up by itself, that is sufficient. Eight Yechidi, I'm sorry, So let's say it's one piece of wood, it's like one log of wood. What's the definition of majority? So Rav says it has to be the majority of its thickness. 
And other people say it has to be majority of its hekefa, of its circumference. So how do you define majority? Do you define majority as including the interior, the in, internal area, or do you define majority as just the external area, even though if we wanted to include the interior area, it would not yet have become a majority. So there's two different opinions over here. Papa says, you know what? You need both. If you have just a, a log by itself, it has to be the majority of its, of its insides and the majority of its outsides as well. Hitznai, like we learned in a Mishnah. And it's actually, I'm just thinking right now, my wife's grandfather sometimes has a, a fire in his fireplace. I think what he does is, Sabbath. I think he does something cool though. He sets he has it set on a timer. I'm trying to remember what he does. I'm guessing the, the difference is that if you have one of those um those grates that are in front of you in between you and the and the log, so that would be considered like a like a hacker, like a reminder that you won't come to soak it on Shabbos. I'm not sure though, because that's actually the typical way to do it. Okay, not sure actually where that's coming from. Okay. Um so how much does the fire have to have started on the wood before Shabbos? That the wood is so destroyed by the fire that it will never ever be used again for the Malachas Uman, for the, a craftsman, a carpenter is not going to use this wood anymore because it's burnt wood. Yehuda ben Maseira says that the fire has already taken hold on it from two different places. Taking hold on it from two different places is clearly a lot less than the amount of fire that's going to have to happen before the wood is no longer being used by a craftsman. The Mara says, even though there's no actual proof to this, there is a hint to this in the Torah. Both sides have been eaten by the fire. So the definition is that the um, two sides have been eaten by the fire, and the inside has become uh, dried out. And then will that still be able to be used for the for the uh, for its working for, for something that can be worked with? Okay, continuing. What is this word ach? Rav achvana. Rav says it is achvana, which is a, a type of willow, uh, willow kindling. Shmuel says it does not mean does not mean a willow thing. It means it means um, wood that has been lit be achvana. What is Achvana? Arava? The Achvana? Okay. So what it means is like this. So Rashi says what it means is the type of fire that the small pieces and the large pieces have already been lit. They've been lit like Achvana more is like um, in the language of Achvus, like um, in unity, that both the little pieces of wood have already been kindled and the big pieces of wood have been kindled. man Achvana. He says that we found someone who was saying, who wants an Achvana? And we came to see what he's selling, and he was selling willows. So we see that the word Achvana could mean willows. When you have weeds that are being, not weeds, I'm sorry, reeds that are being burnt, you don't need that most of the weeds have already caught fire before Shabbos. Why? Because reeds catch fire very, very quickly. So if even one reed is on fire, the next one will catch fire too. However, if you've already bound the reeds up together, then you do need that most of it is caught fire before Shabbos. And the Gemara is going to ask, it should actually be the opposite. If you have nuts, you don't need to have that most of them have caught fire before Shabbos. Um, not, not nuts, I'm sorry. Garinan are um, like pits of, um, pits of like a, a stone fruit, let's say. They do not need to have most of them caught fire before Shabbos. 
if you put them into a basket, then most of them, then if they're already sitting in a basket, most of these pieces of, most of these pits, then it does have to be that most of them acquire fire before Shabbos. Chizda asks the question, if anything, it's the opposite. If they're sitting by themselves, then the fire won't necessarily go from one to the other. But if they're already attached to each other, then the fire will go to each other, will go from one to the other. Garinon, mevadron, nasnon, same thing for Garinan. If they're sitting pits by themselves, they won't necessarily catch fire from one to the other. But if they're sitting all these pits together in one basket, if one of them lifts, then all of them will light. It's Renami. We'll bring a proof to this as well. If the Karnam have already been bundled together, then it needs to be that most of them have caught fire. If they're not bundled together, then they do not need that most of them caught fire. Pits. If pits that are now catching fire, then you need to be that most of them have caught fire. If you put them in a basket, ain't strichen rave. They does not need to be that most of them caught fire. Tony said, Arba Maduras ain't strichen rave. There are four types of, of bonfires that do not need to have most of them catching fire before Shabbos to permit it to be started before Shabbos and continue on Shabbos. Tell Zephyrus, if you have the, uh, a pitch, Rachel Gafris or sulfur, Rachel Gvina or cheese, Rachel Rachel. Right? These are four types of uh, materials that once they start catching fire, they will continue catching fire quickly. Ravav is some sort of um, like a um, beef fat. Masnisatana, in the rice that we learned like this, so too if you have straw and um, like a stubble, they call it, but like basically like little, uh, little kindling, like little pieces of, uh, of um, like thorns or something of that nature, something that catches fire very quickly and goes out quickly too. So all these things, once the fire starts with any of them, it's going to spread rapidly. If you have wood from Bavel, you do not need to have the majority of it has caught fire. says, what's the type of, what is this wood of Bavel? If even when there's a what's silty is they basically make these like really thin strips of wood in bubble, right? So if you make the really thin strips of wood in bubble, and Ula says if you light a candle on Shabbos with a wick, it has to be that most of the wick has taken fire as, as fire has taken hold of it before Shabbos. So if even by a candle wick it has to have taken hold of before Shabbos, so then so why would silty, why would these little strips not need to have taken hold of before Shabbos? Of course, they would need to take hold of before Shabbos. The Shucha de Arza is this basically the, it's a cedar. It's like the, if you ever have like stripped bark off of a tree, then inside the bark, before you get to the wood, there's like this stuff there. I don't know what exactly its purpose is in, in uh, you know, what its role is, but there's this stuff there, like this dried stuff that you can catch fire very, very quickly. So that's really what we're talking about. As long as even part of it has caught fire, the rest of it will catch fire. Rabbi Baraba Amar Zaza. Rabbi Baraba says it is Mulshabal. What's Mulshabalaz? I'm not sure what Zaza is. What's Zaza? Do you guys have a, anybody looking at the art scroll? It says moss. Moss. Okay. Zaza. Okay. Interesting. Oh, Mulsha. I got Ours says Hisap. Uh -huh. Okay. Then I don't feel bad. I can make it up too, I guess, while we're at it. Um, let me see what is Rashi. The, the, I have a lousy Rashi over here. It says Pachav. 
I don't know. I'm not sure what Tachav is either. So it does not matter. Okay. Hadron Allah Kisiyas Shabbos. This is the end of the first chapter of Shabbos, the going out of Shabbos. Now we're going to start by Mehmed Likin. Mehmed Likin talks about the types of wicks and the types of, of, um, of waxes that you're permitted to use when you're lighting candles at Shabbos. And very soon we're going to get into the Hanukkah discussion. Very, very shortly we're going to get into the three blot of Hanukkah discussion. This is the only place in, in Shas where we talk about Hanukkah in the next, starting next block. So, what are you permitted to light with? What are you not permitted to light with? So you're not permitted to light oils any type of any type of time where you're trying to light an oil that's made out of these substances. You're not permitted to light. And why are you not permitted to light with these substances? These substances, Igmar is going to say that they don't they don't light so well. And since they don't light so well, you're more likely to like sort of um give it a little help, like tilt it a little bit to make sure that the oil's you know getting into the fire properly. And because you're likely to do that, Chazal said we don't want you doing that because you might come to tilt it, which would be a prohibition of causing fires to get large. Um, says if you have um, which is um, fats that have been cooked already, then you are permitted to do it. But the Chalim say that even with fats that have been cooked already, basically that they're melted down, they're rendered fast. So the question is, if they're already melted fast, are you permitted to do it? And Lechem Rebbe says, yes. The Chalim say, no. Lechesh, Shucha De'arza. Shucha says, what's Lechesh? Lechesh is the Shucha De'arza, which we, we just finished saying in the previous chapter. Shucha De'arza is that, like, uh, that stuff that's sitting inside the, uh, inside the cedar tree in between the wood and in between the bark. So the Gemara says, that's Eitz Ba'amahu. What's the matter with that? Where it says, but Marinasa de Ispe. The answer is that it's, it's some sort of, Rashi says it's some sort of Temer Yesh Ben Klipas, It's not actual Eitz. It's the in between, like there's some sort of, uh, Rashi goes like a wool, some sort of um, fibers that are in between the branch and the, and, the, uh, and the bark and the wood, and that would be a problem on Shabbos. Chaisen is the, the fibers of black. It says that the, these, uh, these fibers of flax will end up being, will, will, will immediately ignite. So Abaya says, We're talking about a earlier stage of the flax. So once the flax gets rolled up and, and uh, and um, and tightened and rolled and I guess uh, whatever else they do with it when they weave it before they start using it as a fabric, then it's ready to light easily. But beforehand, it's not as easy to light. So Shmuel says, I asked all the people who go down to the sea. And he basically asked them, what's klach? And they said to me, it is called kolcha. He says it's called Gushkara. Rabin Vabayasi Kame de Ravna, Nachemia Akba de Rishalus. They were sitting in front of Nachemia, the brother of the Exilarch. Khazia the Havilovish Matchasa. He saw that he was wearing Matchasa. Amrali Rabin Labaya Hainu Klach. He said, This is what Klach is, this type of garment that he's wearing. It's Tanan, because we learned it in a Mishnah. Amrali, 
this is the class that our Mishnah and Ben Melikin was talking about. Amale and Nan Shira Pardana Karina and Le. Says we never called this clock. We called it some sort of silk, a, pard- a silken pard- pard- parnida. That's what we always called it. Mesve. They ask a question. Hashirayim back clock by Hasrikin. It says that Shirayim, clock and Hasrikin are all obligated in sisters. The implication is that Shirayim and clock are different. You just told me that this is a case of a garment that's made out of silk and it's really called and it's called clock. Implication is that Shirayim and clock are the same thing. But yet over here in this other place we find. Shirayim and Klach are counted separately when it comes to figuring out what is obligated in Sitzis. The Yof says, the Gemara says, okay, clearly it cannot be talking about what Klach is. The one answer is it's a Tiyofta. Indeed, we have taken the opinion of, we've taken the opinion of, um, of who was it again? Abaya. They've taken the opinion of Abaya and we threw it out. And the other opinion is that no, we didn't because what we're talking about here is there is a difference between regular silk and the silk parnada. Let's see. So it's a, a willow. That's also something that you cannot use. Ravan Vabaya Harika Azba bit piksa de Tamruti Tamrutiya Kazina Lahanu Arbasa. Amali Ravan Abaya Hainu Aden. So Ravan tells Abaya, this is Idan. What's Idan? That's Rashi. See, if I would say Bamemelikin every Friday night instead of learning in the uh, as in the Beis Medrash, then I would actually know what these things are. Uh, let's see. Takes up Veka Eifamu. What? What's Idan? Earl, what's Idan? This is the Eden that Mishnah mentioned. So he says, this is really referring to the Amrinisa that is in between the wood and the bark again. Yeah, it says something like the woolly substance between the bark and the wood of a willow tree. I mean, again, and now we're talking about not the, not the cedar tree, but rather in the, in the willow tree, the bark, the in between the bark and the actual wood. Okay. But they've seen us at midbar and not using the not using the uh the wicks of the midbar. Shavra. The the green things that are on top of the sea. Mahi, what is this? Ilema Uchmasa, if we're referring to Uchmasa de Kharitse, Ifruchi Mefarchan. That is Ifruchi Mefarchan, that is something that I think means it will it will light right away. Oh, no, so it's not going to light it right away. It's not something that you could even roll into a wick. It's just not a substance that can be rolled up like that. So you can't be talking about that type of green thing. So we're talking about the green stuff that grows on the side of a boat. And that sort of, I guess, the algae on the side of a boat, that could actually be rolled up into a wick. Says that we also add onto this list, we also add wool and and um and the hairs that also we add on as things that you cannot use as you wish so aratana why didn't he say these as cases because these are not things they're not things that you use for lighting at all because if you try to light with wool if you try to light with this here immediately it just it just dies out right away it burns up and shrivels up immediately so nobody would ever come to light with it you don't have to list it in our mishnah but the brights actually listed it too but not with pitch Zephas Zifta, Shava Kiruta. 
So zephes is pitch, and shaiva is um, you know some sort of wax, beeswax. Tana adkan up until now, we've been talking about the types of psilis, the type of wicks that you're not allowed to light with. Now we're going to start talking about the types of oil you're not allowed, not, not allowed to light with. Shita, this is obvious. We needed it for the case of wax, right? Why, why do we need it for the case of wax? I would have said, I would have thought that shaiva, wax, cannot be used for as a wick and it cannot be used as oil. And the answer is, and no. For oil, it could be, for oil, it can't be used. If it's the only thing that's being, if it's the only thing that is being lit, is the actual wax that doesn't work. But let's say you're taking the wax as we have today with our candles. You have wax that's wrapped around a wick up in the middle. That's, uh, I guess, those are thing made out of cotton. So you have the wax that's going around the cotton, and that's actually permitted. It's only not permitted if the wax itself is the fire. Amar Rami Barafin, Itrana Psulta de Zifta. Itrana is the leftovers of Zifta, is pitch. Shaiva Psulta de Dovsha. Shaiba wax is the leftovers of dovshana, literally means a honey. So what we're really referring to is wax that's made out of beeswax. What's the difference what it's made out of? Who cares what it came from, right? It's not our discussion right now. So the answer is we're telling you this for the purposes of identifying when people are having a sale and they're saying, I want to sell, I want to buy this. Or the guy says, okay, I'll sell you that. And then he gives them a different product. So how do you define what was the terminology? What did the term mean? The answer is, the, this one is the leftovers of the of oil, I'm not of oil, of, of a honeycomb, and this is the leftovers of, of the pitch. All of these things, you're not permitted to use them if you're planning on using these substances to light a candle on Shabbos. When you light a candle on Shabbos, you have one candle sitting on your table, one candle sitting on your sideboard, and you're using that candle, that one little candle's light is giving you the light. There wasn't electricity in those days. So that one candle is giving you the light, or two candles giving you that light. So you're likely to come to, to flick it or to try to cause the oil to, to, um, to, to go up better because it's this one little thing giving you light. However, if you're using the substance as a bonfire, we're not concerned that you're going to come to soak it. The bonfire has, has so much that we're not going to be concerned. And we're not concerned whether it's in there to make you hot, whether it's there to use the light, whether it's on the fire, whether it's on top of the stove. We only forbade you to do it if you're using it as a wick for a candle alone, but not for a, not, not as the purposes of making a tremendous bonfire. We said you're not allowed to use shaman kick. My shaman kick, what is the shaman kick? I went and asked the, all the people who go down to the sea, what is the nature of this kick? And they said to me, It's some sort of bird that it lives in the, in the sides of the the sides of the sea, and it's called a kick. I, I'm not sure what type of bird this is. I, if I remember correctly, but maybe I'm making this up, the albatross have, a, have oil, or maybe the dodo bird. One of those birds had, had a, a lot of oil. Uh, Earl, counting on you for this one. Uh, and for, perhaps that's what they were talking about here. I, I, I have no idea, but I mean, the, the kind of birds that are common in seaports are seagulls. You, yeah, occasionally, you occasionally see pelicans. But what type of bird has oil that people would be using? Chicken. <laughs> I guess that's true. That's, yeah. <laughs> that I'm, better than you're asking it, the wrong yeah. person. Okay. Okay. We trust on you for these things. So I, I will say one thing, though. Um, traditional Japanese bowstrings are made from hemp, which is flax. And if you untwist the fibers and comb them out, 
you get very, very fine fibers that can be twisted into a wheel. Just, I mean, you can do it. Interesting. But you're saying if you just took the fiber by themselves and didn't try to twist them together, what would happen if you lit it on fire? It'd probably burn up instantly. Yeah, Slavic, if, you're, if there's a fire in your development tonight, you know what's happening, but okay. Um, and hopefully not. <laughs> Earl, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm just joking. Earl, do you go to Renaissance fairs? I used to. He's a LARPer all day long. LARPer. Absolutely. I'm LARPing right now, Rabbi. <laughs> I hope I'm, not. I'm, I'm playing the part of a pious Jew. Oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't want to see your video then. <laughs> but okay, good. That's okay. I'm wearing a sweatshirt video. and jeans, for God's sake. <laughs> Okay, fine. Very good. Okay, so let's go further. Um, so, okay, fine. So they said, what's this shaman kick? You said it's a type of bird that gives off uh, oil. Um, the son of Rabbi Yehuda says, Mishcha de Kaaza. It's this type of uh, oil from the Kaaza. What's Kaaza? Rishlakash Amar Kikayan de Yainer. Rishlakash says, is the Kikayan de Yainer, right? So when, when Yonah, the, the prophet, is uh, wants Hashem to is feeling bad that Hashem is not destroying Ninveh even though they did Shuvah. So Hashem makes this a, a miraculous thing that this tree grows right next to it and it gives a massive shade for it. And the, the, the oil from that tree is the oil that we're referring to when we talk about Hashem and Kik. Really, that is an oil that did not, it was not particularly, um, not particularly well suited for having, uh, having candles from that oil. Okay. You can do know. So he describes this thing and it had they they actually used it for they did use the oil for sometimes and the it seems like they would like use it for shade also the leaves would be used for shade and store owners would put it in front of their I guess as an awning makeshift awning the types of wicks that Chazal said you're not allowed to use Shabbos is because the fire will flicker with these types of wicks. The oils that the Chacham said you're not permitted to use in Shabbos. Why they say that? Why are you not allowed to use these types of oils on Shabbos? Because these oils don't get dragged up into the into the wick. The way it works is, and I'm not a. Why chemist. do you care if it flickers? So the reason why you care if it flickers is because since it's flickering, it, it gets you like nervous, and you want it to be. There's like a, an assumption at least that the reason why it's flickering is because the oil in the wick is not really the wick. If the wick had like more oil in it, then maybe it would work better. So I think the idea is that you're more likely to like tilt it so that the oil would come in more fully and then it will, won't flicker, right? I don't think wicks don't flicker by their nature. If it flickers, that means that the oil is not fully saturating it for whatever reason. So one of them is the nature of the wick that doesn't get fully saturated, I think. And the other one is the nature of the oil that it doesn't get drawn up, right? So what happens is when you have, let's say, if you have like a, a wick, you know, on Hanukkah, let's say you have that wick that you stick in. I'm just looking at my, at my, um, at my Menorah. But if you have wicks stuck into oil, so what happens is the oil is being like sort of sucked up through that wick. And then as, when it gets to where the fire is, then the fire is, is uh, you know, is, that's the fuel. So sometimes the wicks, they don't actually do a great job, you know, evenly burning. And therefore you're more likely to tilt it so that it will more evenly burn. And some types of, um, 
and some types of oil don't get dragged up so well. You know, I'm thinking right now, I don't know if the problem with the wick is that it, maybe the idea with the wick is not that you're going to tilt it because you want it to catch fire better. Maybe you're going to tilt it because you just can't see it so well. Rashi. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it definitely does sound like it's an idea that the oil is not going to go up into the wick properly, but more because of a, a defect in the nature of the wick than a defect in the nature of the oil. Rashi says that perhaps the Mesachsechus means that it actually, by, it means that the oil won't actually get into the wick in a very full way. It'll sort of like be some, in some parts of it, in some parts of it won't be. Okay. Baimine Abaya mi Rabba. Abaya asked Rabba. The oils that, that the Chacham said you're not allowed to use the light on Shabbos. There are certain types of oils you're not allowed to use on Shabbos. You have a Shemin kick oil. Now, you have a little bit of olive oil. Can you put a little bit of olive oil into that mixture? And then could you actually use it? Because since there is olive oil there, maybe that's permitted. Maybe the sages only said it's not permitted to use the kick oil because the kick oil is not going to go in properly. But since there's a little bit of olive oil, that will go in properly. Maybe then you could do that. Do we say that when there's a little bit of regular oil in, we still should be gozer, we still, we still should make a decree that you can't use this oil even when it's mixed together with a little bit of good oil. Why? Because if you use it with mixed together with a little of good oil, you might come to use it without any good oil at all. So do we say that or not? Amalei says, you're not allowed to use it even though it's mixed together with good oil. My time, oh why? Because you're not permitted to light with it, right? So it really means it's not the only place where the Gemara really has this question and then answers basically just because. What it really means is, yeah, you were right. You were right that the sages indeed do make an enactment that you cannot use this type of bad oil, even though you put in a little bit of kosher oil, it still doesn't work. Because there's a concern that you might then come to light it with just the not kosher oil. Not, not kosher, it's not about not kosher. Not appropriate oil for shops. If you wrap something that you normally are permitted to light with around something that you're not permitted to light with, then you're not permitted to use that to light. Because in the house of my father, they would wrap a pila, they would wrap a wick around a nut, and they would light it. Now, you're not allowed to light a nut. If you light a nut on fire, that's not going to work. So, how is it possible that Rashim Gamil says you are permitted to wrap it around a nut and light it? It must be that Rashim Gamil says that we're not concerned for the fact that you have something in there that is not permitted to light by itself. As long as there's something there that you are permitted to light, then you're permitted to light the whole thing. Implication would be that you could mix together a little bit of kosher oil with a lot of not kosher oil, and that would work. So we see over here that you are permitted to use it to light. You're bringing me a proof from Rashim Gamil who says that you are permitted to light the nut you're, I'm sorry, you are permitted to light the wick once it's been wrapped around the nut. Why don't you bring me a proof from the first part of the Mishnah? The first part of this Mishnah says, if you wrap something around something that you're not allowed to light, then it doesn't change anything. And you still cannot light the finished product. Implication, once again, even if Shungan Lil might argue, but the Tanakama certainly seems to be saying like him. So the Gemara says, me the, ta me the Tanakama, holy kasha. You can't ask a question from the Tanakama like this. Maisa Rab. There's no question from the Tanakhama. Here's a very important halachic principle. When you have a machlekes, machlekes tanoim, machlekes amarayim, if one of them says, I actually did this in real life, that changes the dynamic. 
Because if somebody says you did that in real life, that takes precedence. We have a concept called halacha. We learned this in brachas. We have a concept called halacha ve'in Sometimes the Mishnah will tell us this is the halacha, but it wouldn't necessarily actually actually follow that in, in practice. But where you actually see that someone did this in practice, that takes precedence. So Rishim Gamaliel is saying, this is what we did in my father's household. That's going to take precedence over what the Tanakhama said, the theoretical halacha is, doesn't follow this. So if you have a Tanakhama talking about a theoretical case, and you have Rav Gamaliel telling us about what he actually did, then Rav Gamaliel thinks should be the decisive question over here. So therefore, we should have a proof that you are permitted to mix together a little bit of the appropriate oil, appropriate oil with the not appropriate oil and use that to light for Shabbos. So that, that seems to be a proof right now. And that is against the opinion of Rabbah. Komakum kasha. My love, lahadlik, loy lahakwe. So Gemara says, no, there's no question at all. Rishim Gamaliel is not talking about a case where you're actually lighting the nut as well. You're only lighting the wick that's around the nut. What are you using the nut for? The nut is basically the support so that you can light it properly. So, if you're talking about a case that you're only using the nut and the purposes of wrapping the wick around the nut was just so that the nut would be the support for the, for the wick, then why does the Tanakhama say you're not permitted to do this? This is all the opinion of Rav Gamaliel. Entire writes is all Rav Gamaliel. And this is how you should really read it. It's missing a couple of words. This is what it should say. If you wrap something that you're permitted to light with on top of something or around something that you're not permitted to light with, you're not permitted to light it. What are we talking about? To light the entire thing on fire, that's not going to work because the inside part is not something you can normally light. But if you're talking about something that you wrapped it around and the inside thing is not going to be lit at all, we're only ever dealing with lighting the outside part of it. Then indeed it is mutter to light the outside part and not like the inside part. How do we know that that's true? So here's where Rav Shem words then come into play. Because in the house of my father, they would wrap the wick around the nut. That's where we see that you are permitted to light, to light something as long as it's wrapped around, but not for the purposes of lighting the entire thing, rather just for the purposes of lighting the item that has been wrapped around, but not for the purposes of lighting the entire thing. 